If you would, turn the Bible to the book of James. Feels good to say that. Last Sunday we started uh, a walk through the 108 verses that are the New Testament letter written by James. If you weren't here last week, then we want to invite you into this study with us. Our church likes to choose a book and then settle down in it and take as long as we need to take and study the book. It's going to take us some time. And if you weren't here last week, then we are glad that you're here, and that's what we're doing. Today we're going to start at James chapter 1 and verse 2, and we're going to cover those next three verses, 2, 3, and 4. If you weren't here then we would love for you to go back. You can get online, go to church website, and you can find the message, and you can listen to it there to get caught up. It was basically an introduction. We asked, who is this James? And we talked about all the different Jameses that there are in the New Testament. There are four different Jameses in the New Testament. But this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who uh, has written this letter. And We're calling this series, this study, Faith Works. And there's a lot to be said there. Uh, Over the course of us studying this over several weeks, you're going to see why it's called Faith Works. But we want to know that the emphasis of the New Testament believer is faith. And and Josh Wamble did a great job of praying about that during his prayers, that faith, we must believe, we must be uh, trusting in God and his truth and his son who died for us and is our savior and is the king of the world who we will all uh, answer to in judgment, right? This is Jesus that we believe, that we follow, that we trust. And faith works. Faith is the key to life. There's also, though, a play on words there with the huge emphasis in the book of James on good works, which we'll get into in the later chapters. Well, I told you that James is a, is a sharpshooter and he gets right to it, right? This is the first book written in the New Testament, or the first one that was written. Um, and James is strong and he's bold and he, <clears throat> he, he, he speaks the truth. And uh, a lot of times the New Testament letters open up with why we're thankful for the church and why he loves the church and all that good stuff, but not James. James just gets right to it and so will we. Read with me at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, <clears throat> when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm calling this sermon the testing of your faith. So what we're going to see in this passage here are are really a transition from one thought through four thoughts, all right? We have trials. We got to understand trials. We have testing. We have to understand testing. Then we have steadfastness. And then we have maturity. Okay, so if you can get those four terms here today, then you're going to really understand James's initial thought. Now, James is an interesting book, right? It was the first book written in the New Testament, so he's not thinking about all that's already been said, okay? James is writing from his heart, burdened for the church, specifically the 12 tribes and the dispersion that he mentions in verse 1. They're being persecuted. Life is really hard for them, and he's writing this letter to them to build them up. 
But chapter 1 is very choppy. Some people think the whole book's choppy, but chapter 1 is very choppy. It's hard to figure out what is James's point or main point or theme in all of chapter 1. Now, chapter 2 is all about faith without works, and chapter 3 is all about the tongue, and, and there's some themes that you can pick up on, but chapter 1 is like a few verses about this, 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 and everybody's like, what's going on? For that reason, appreciate it, man. For that reason, some people have called James the Proverbs of the New Testament. I mean, he's just throwing out all these nuggets of wisdom, this advice, this good teaching, all right? And so that's kind of where we're at. We're looking at verses two through four today, and we're thinking, okay, he just went straight from this quick, short introduction into trials. I mean, that's the first thing he brings up, which is interesting, which means they're going through some trials which means they know life is hard. So if you can get trials, which are tests, which create steadfastness, which creates maturity in you as a believer. Not, now, not, we're not at all ever here talking about just, just toughness for toughness sake. We're not just talking about experience for experience sake. We're not just talking about maturity for maturity's sake. We're talking about Toughness in the faith or experience in Christ as a Christian. Uh, we're talking about maturity in Christ, which is a good term. It's a, it's a Bible term, a mature believer, one who's not immature, one who's not tossed to and fro by every sound of every t uh, wave of doctrine, one who's not uh, up and down depending on what this guy says or what this guy says, but rather one who has their eyes on Christ, who walks by faith, who believes their follower and trusts. This is the maturity that God says is the goal for every believer. The New Testament describes over and over again how disappointing and how much of a letdown it is when believers should be mature in their faith and they're not. You can recall saying, I still have to address you as immature believers. I have to address you like you're an unbeliever even though you say you're a believer. I should be feeding you meat, but you are actually still drinking milk. And he's speaking to the fact that you, you should be further along than this. And James is picking up on the same idea that he wants us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's his way of saying whole or mature. But we've got to understand what gets us there, okay? Trials, testing, steadfastness, maturity. But I do, well, even with those four terms, I just want to give you three points. Number one is going to be the purpose of trials and tests. And you cannot miss the key word there, purpose. Number two is going to be the power of steadfastness. And oh, is it powerful. And then lastly, number three, the point of maturity. The point of maturity. Now, Rick Warren, who I quoted from last week too, says in speaking about James's letter, when I'm saying faith works, he says, this is a faith that works when life doesn't. And you can see the idea of trials there. Life's not working for me, but faith will work when life isn't. Or, to put it another way, he says, a faith that isn't troubled by troubles. And I like that. A faith that works or a faith that is not troubled by troubles or the trials. So here we go. Number one, the purpose of trials and tests. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various 
kinds. That's the first thing he says are the trials. Now, as a quick little note, because I hope that you're taking notes, right here he says, brothers, you know that when the New Testament uses this word brothers, it refers to brothers and sisters. We've pointed that out so many times. In this short letter, he says that 15 times. I told y'all James is awesome. He's rock solid. You see his heart. He loves them. He cares for them. This is not some letter that he hopes they get. This is not some letter that he wonders, you know, you read it if you want to. I mean, I just sent it to you. It's not that big of a deal. No, he is pouring over this. His heart, his soul, life, faith, salvation matters here. And so in five little chapters, 108 verses, 15 times he uses that word, brothers, brothers and sisters. He cares for them. He wants them to understand James wants the Christian people scattered in the dispersion to know that trials have a purpose. And you need to know that as well. Trials are tests. Trials are from God to teach us. So often, we have quoted these verses in James as a way of trying to change our attitude during hard times. And we preach to ourselves that we should be joyful when we stub our toe or joyful when the car breaks down or joyful when the house is all chaotic with screaming and fighting and people being angry. And we should change our perspective on that. And that's not what James said. That's the way we use it. That's not what James is wanting us to get at. Certainly a part of the meaning of James's word to us is that, but it is not the whole message. It's not the main message of these verses. There's much more. More than merely a command to have a joyful attitude or a happy demeanor and a smile upon your face, James wants us to think and believe rightly about our trials, about the trials that we face. James James wants us to believe God even during our troubles. James is telling us to look for the purpose of God in our trials. If you've lived long enough, you know that experience is a good teacher. You know that, right? I remember when I was in high school running cross country, and our races were a three-mile race, a 5K, 3.1 miles. And we would practice all the time, and you usually practice this time of the year, and it's so hot. And all we did was complain to our coach. And we'd show up to practice, and he'd say, all right, today we're running four miles. We'd come to show up to practice. All right, today we're running five miles. And sometimes, even at a high school practice, we would run six miles for high school cross-country practice. And then we get to the race, and it'd be a measly three. That's good coaching, isn't it? Hey, if we've been pushing through four, five, and six miles all week long, and then we show up to a three, we're like, that's it? I mean, I'll knock this out in just a few minutes, and we'll be done, right? And so the trial of suffering through four or five or six miles was producing in us a toughness or an experience or a perseverance that said, hey, three miles isn't anything. And if God's goal for you, listen, if God's goal for you is for you to be a mature believer, which is going to be the final point today, for you to be like him, for you to trust him, for you to be holy and godly and upright and not a complainer and not sinful and not doubting and not pushed around by everything in the world that pushes us around. If God's goal for you is to make you mature, then sometimes he's going to make you run six to prepare for three. And sometimes he's going to push you through a trial so that you'll be more solid. This is what is the point of James. God's goal is maturity, so therefore we must think rightly about trials. Trials have a purpose. Trials are tests. God is working in the trials and the tests, and God has a plan and a purpose with them. And we have to believe him. We have to trust God. We have to know that faith works. 
And notice here that James says all kinds of trials, various kinds of trials, and it is not hard for us to understand this. Every one of you today walked in with some trials that are bothering you. It could be a numerous variance of things. But life is hard, and life is hard for so many reasons. Think about this. There are people these days limited on leaving their house due to COVID. There are people these days just dealing with the challenge of they can't go to this place or they're not supposed to go to this place. There are people these days struggling to figure out childcare. And Matt did a great job praying to the end of just thinking about families these days. Right now, childcare is an issue. There are people who are struggling financially. And when the $600 stops, there are going to be more people struggling financially. This past Wednesday, we passed out food to 160 homes living in the South End with our Dare to Care food pantry. That's over 500 people showing up here, hoping that we have some bread, hoping that we have some some produce so they continue to eat, so they can feed their home, so the kids and grandkids will be fed. We know that people struggle. We know that life is hard. We know that we face all sorts of trials. But James was writing to us some specific people here, the early church, the church in the first century. And so thinking about the context of James's letter, surely we can see their trials as well. These believers were spread out in the dispersion due to persecution against the churches. We can easily see how these issues, among others, would have been some of the trials that they were facing. So James writes to them to count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. When James says for them to count it all joy, is he insensitive? Does he not understand? Is he not able to grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn and sympathize or empathize with those who are having a hard time? Well, no, he absolutely does. James is living in the first century as well. He knows all about it. James isn't telling them to be happy about their suffering. James is telling them to believe God in their suffering. Don't miss that. There's always joy for us to possess from God when we have faith in God, no matter what trial we are in. Do you hear that? There is always a joy from God even when the trial's not very joyful. If God's the one who gives you that joy, something he's doing by faith in your heart, then the trial doesn't determine your joy, God does. And so when a trial happens, we start looking to God and saying, God, you have a purpose and I'm gonna believe you in it. Now, well, anytime we start talking about this, I know that questions arise. Suffering raises so many questions. I want to read this to you from Douglas Moo. He says, feeding into James's teaching on trials, we should note, it is the intense wrestling with the problem of undeserved suffering, why does God allow the righteous to suffer, is indeed one of the most perplexing and difficult questions that God's people can ask. James gives us no complete answer to why. But implicit in what James says is a conviction that the suffering of believers is always under the providential control of a God who wants only the best for his people. We don't know why God's putting us through it, but we can trust that he wants what's best for us. I didn't want my coach to ever say, six miles today, but when we came to a three-mile race, we were thankful that we had done it. 
You understand that? Well, on a such bigger level, may we get that. We are to consider it joy when we face trials, okay? So now we'll move to tests because we know that the trials from God are tests from God. It says this here in the book of James. This is a critical point for us to recognize. Tests are good for us. And I remember teaching our church this last year. There's a difference between tests and temptations, and this becomes a little bit complicated here in James chapter 1 because it's the same word that's often translated test and temptation. So you've got to really understand context when you're trying to get at it. If you're using the King James Version right now, it doesn't say, te- it doesn't say test there. It says temptations there in, in, in what we're looking at today in the King James Version. And it's not that far off for saying that. We just tend to think that temptation is a negative thing and test is a good thing, and that's really what I believe. Tests are good for us. Temptations are bad for us. A temptation wants to get you to fail. The devil tempts you so that you will fail. Tests are good for us. They get you to pass. A test is to show how much you know. A test is to prove your faithfulness. Now, it's becoming more and more of a, a, of, a, of a good and useful thing to be able to speak Spanish in our day, in our country, and in our culture. If you can speak Spanish, then you've got a leg up on many other people. Even with our Dare to Care food pantry every single Wednesday, we have multiple cars pull up that don't speak English and they're speaking Spanish, and we're looking for somebody that can help them just get name and address and how many people are in the house or something like that. And every once in a while, you'll see somebody that can just step up and speak Spanish, and they're, and they're, a, they're an American person that you wouldn't have thought was going to speak, able to speak Spanish. And so here's how the conversation goes. Wow, I didn't know you could speak Spanish. Where'd you learn that? And every once in a while, you hear them say, oh, they offered it in my high school. And you think, oh, wow. Well, they offered it in my high school too, and I took it, but we just laughed at the teacher and made fun of the names and made fun of his accent, and we just slept all the time, so we didn't really learn it. And you think, Oh, you went to school, and they offered it. You took the class, you took the test, but you didn't learn anything? How embarrassing. I remember my professor in college saying, education has to be the only thing in the world that people love to pay for to not get anything. Education has to be the only thing in the world that people love to pay for, but they don't get anything. Nothing makes the students happier when he cancels class. (laughs) Nothing makes the students happier when he says, no test today. Nothing makes the students happier when they don't have to do any assignments, right? But the purpose of a test is for you to show how much you know. Study to show yourself approved is what the Bible says. So we have this idea of temptations and tests here going on in James. And he says, if you'll look back at chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, does everybody see that? The testing of your faith. The purpose of the trials and tests is for God to work out in us growth, experience. God is trying to get in us that we understand in this fallen world where people sin and things don't go the way we often want them to, that life's not smooth and easy, that it's full of trials, and are we going to hold on? Are we going to believe that the anchor holds? Are we going to believe that Christ is a Savior in the midst of all of the hardship? And so the trials are tests. 
Pastor Hughes says, James is commending the conscience, conscious embrace of a Christian understanding of life, which brings joy into the trials that come because of our Christianity. He says that knowing the context of, persecu- of a persecuted church. Now, the difference here of us living in a pandemic, we're suffering at times, and there is some hardship, but you and I ought to be the very first to admit that we're not trying to equate living in the pandemic is the same as living under persecution, for that is much more difficult. Surely, we will all admit to that. But we are admitting that life is troubling right now, and so we look to the example of the book of James to where we need to see the purpose of trials and tests. What I like about us studying this is that not only are we going through trials, but everybody is going through trials. And if our church's desire, as I preached on just about four or five weeks ago, through our church's mission statement, is to let everybody know about Jesus who loves them and died for them and changes lives, if we exist to proclaim Jesus while loving and serving both God and people, then we ought to have our hearts and minds ready and our feet and hands ready and our antennas up ready for action, knowing that all the trials that we're going through, the world around us is going through too. And we can live and speak directly into that. I was thankful about three weeks ago when I got a phone call from a number that I didn't know. And I hear that many people now, if you don't have the number saved, you just automatically reject it. I haven't gotten to that point yet, so I have a whole lot of, yep, sorry, wrong guy. Yep, yep, sorry, wrong guy. I keep answering my phone. But on this one, it was somebody from the community. And their 26-year-old son had died just a few weeks ago. I didn't know this lady. I had never spoken to her. But listen to what she said to me. She said, eight years ago, my son graduated from Fairdale High School. And do you remember when y'all used to feed the football team pregame meals on Fridays and you would pray with the team? She said that was the closest thing he ever had to church or a minister. That's just one little family and an example of a trial. We are to believe that God has purpose in our trials and tests. So that when we get into a trial or test, we don't run or quit or give up. We believe. Now notice I didn't say we pull our our boots up. You learn that from mom and dad. You learn that through the hard way. James has taken us much past that. James is saying that when you go through the trials and tests, you are to believe that God has purpose in it. They are purposeful. God is putting us there so that we can prove our faith, walk by faith, display our faith. This means that God is using them. God is working in them. This means that God means to produce something. Look back there at uh, 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 verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The test produces something. Some of y'all remember us studying 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. Paul says that we were so suffering so much that we thought we were going to die. He says that in 2 Corinthians 1. And then he says, that was to 
prove. But that was to make us rely on God. He didn't die. He said we were suffering so much, we thought we were going to die, and that was to make us rely on God. See, if you think the trials and the tests are not from God or God's not in them, and you're waiting for life to just get better and prettier and sweeter so that then you can be a Christian, you're missing what the Bible and what James says. Trials are tests that produce something. That's our second point, the power of steadfastness. Verse 3 says... The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Does everybody see that? A test proves something. So you walk into class and you tried to cram all night studying and the teacher comes out with one of them hard tests and guess what happens? You flunk that test. And it's happened to all of you, I know that. You flunk that test and you think, man, I should have prepared But every once in a while, there's a student that didn't hang out all night, and they labored over the notes, and they took it serious, and they spent all week studying, and they didn't try to cram. They did a little bit on Tuesday, a little bit on Wednesday, a little bit on Thursday, and they came into the test on Friday, and guess what? They passed it. They aced it. There's people out there that make good grades, believe it or not. You know what they said? I prepared. I knew all the questions. I wasn't taken back by the test. The test was good for them. You know, every time we go to the doctor and they're like, well, it can't be this and it can't be this. We can't combine those medicines, but you can't do this. And because you're this weight, you can't do that. And because you're doing this, you can't do that. Here's what I'm going to prescribe for you. I think I'm so glad they did good in school. I am so glad they studied. I'm so glad they took the test. I'm so glad they passed their test, right? A test produces something. And if God gives trials and tests, we've got to say, what's he trying to produce in me? What's he trying to produce in me? What's he trying to produce in me? Now, the answer is maturity, not just steadfastness. Steadfastness will get you to maturity, but let's start here with steadfastness. Number two, the power of steadfastness. Steadfastness is a good word. Maybe it's an older word. You don't ever use it. I know that. I don't hear anybody say it. I don't use it. It's not used much these days, but I like this word. It just sounds strong. Sounds like a good characteristic to have. Many translations don't use steadfastness. You might have the word endurance in your Bible or patience or perseverance, something like that. Steadfastness means this. It means staying power. It means the ability to hang on, to hang in there. It means the ability to not give up, the ability to not quit. It is the ability to keep going. Steadfastness, endurance, patience, perseverance. This ain't my first rodeo. Hey, I've been through that before. Three-mile race, man, I've been running five now these days. This is nothing. We got this, right? That's what God wants to produce in us. Again, not from our own mantle, not because our muscles have gotten bigger, but because our faith has gotten better. That's what he's working in us. Now, everybody likes that. If, y'all, if, this was a, if this was a work meeting, right, if we were giving a talk here today at the, at, 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 the, at the local mechanic shop or we were down at the hospital speaking to the healthcare workers and we started talking about steadfastness and perseverance and endurance and I know it's so hard to keep giving up, they like that message too. Everybody likes that message. That's not exactly what James is getting at. And the goal certainly is not steadfastness. The goal is maturity, but we can't miss this middle point. But how do you develop that? And this could real quickly, i got to be careful, this could real quickly turn into a sermon on parenting. 
because we protect our kids and guard our kids so much that they're soft and wimpy and they get hit by the hardships of life and they can't handle it. How do you develop grit and toughness and steadfastness spiritually? How do you develop that? How do you develop staying power and I'm going to get through this? Well, as we know, by experiencing it, even by faith. By faith, we've been through things. By faith, God has taken us through things. Just listen to, even when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. The next time you're walking through fire, remember you've walked through fire before and he got you through it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the next time you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the next time death is around you, the next time you think death is around you, remember, I've been through this. God is with me. So experience does it. Douglas Moose says, like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, so Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul only when they face difficulty. I remember when I've been teaching my kids to ride a bike. And we've been through that now multiple times. Listen. It is inevitable in learning to ride a bike or once you've learned to ride a bike that you crash sometimes, don't you? Probably everybody here that knows how to ride a bike can remember a fall where you scuffed your hands or your knees or your elbows. It happens, right? And yet when a kid is trying to learn to ride a bike, their biggest fear is, I don't want to fall. And don't we all know that if you're going to learn to ride a bike, you need to quickly learn, hey, you're going to fall. You've got to be able to fall and get back up. And James is saying, with steadfastness, life is going to be hard. There are going to be trials, and there are going to be tests, and there are going to be things that make you say, I really don't like this. I don't like living this. This is an uncomfortable time, an uncomfortable experience, and all that. And James says, it's coming. It's here. You're going to do it. Various kinds, all sorts of trials are coming. But it's a test to produce steadfastness. John Piper says, strange as it may seem, one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable, that the shaking makes you unshakable. Amen. We should know that the Bible tells us this all the time. Josh Womble read just a little bit ago from, from Romans 5. And listen to what Paul says. Okay, this is not James. This is Paul in Romans 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's Paul writing that. And James is saying the same thing here. Or what about Romans 8, 28? We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God. What about 2 Corinthians 4, 17? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What about Romans 8, 18? 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Four passages right there that say you're going to suffer. Rejoice in it because God has a plan and purpose in it to produce something on the other side. I'm willing to go through this, even though I don't like this, because what God's going to make me out of it is a glorious thing for his sake. That's steadfastness. The key to all of these foundational truths is believing God, trusting Christ in those trials. Take, for instance, Genesis and the story of Joseph. When Joseph makes the monumental statement to his guilty brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Don't we love that? Don't we love it? We love it. We love, man, what a great statement. What you guys meant for evil against me. Y'all hated me. You didn't trust God. You wanted me out. You tried to kill me. That wouldn't work. You sold me into slavery, out of sight, out of mind. You thought I was gone. You thought I was dead. And all of that evil practice by you, which is evil, not like a fake evil, is evil, God meant it for good. And God used my life and raised me up and blessed me, right? You know that story of Joseph. It's outstanding. But... Get this, Joseph is only able to say this, by the way, which he says at the end of Genesis, at the end of the story, Joseph is only able to say this faithful statement because through all the ugly seasons of his life, the lies, the betrayal, the loneliness, the suffering, he kept faith in God. He held tight. And so, on the other side, he was able to see God's good purpose in it on the other side. Listen, Joseph didn't give up on God because Joseph knew a trial does not mean God's given up on him. And yet, every one of us know people who quit because life got hard. And I don't mean quit the thing or quit their job. We know people that do that. And we're all guilty of that to some degree, right? We quit trying to ride our bike or we quit trying to get into this sport or we quit trying to play this video game or whatever because it's too hard for us. But we also know people in the faith who used to be Christian, used to be believers, used to walk with the Lord, but they gave up because there was a trial and they thought, I'm not going to be a part of this if God's going to put, bring this into my life. Which if you study God's word, you see God brought that there because he loves you, because he's so good to you, because he doesn't want you to be a 15-year-old that never learned to ride their bike because you didn't want to fall off. God wants you to be mature. He wants you to look like Christ. He wants to put you on the, on, the, on, on the thing that the clay goes on, and he wants to mold you and mold you. He's the potter, and he wants to mold you and mold you and work with you and pull out all the bad things to make you look like Jesus. And the way you do that is through steadfastness, through God's steadfastness. Joseph, let me say that again. Joseph did not give up on God because Joseph knew that a trial does not mean God had given up on him. It didn't. And so undoubtedly, neither Joseph nor we would have ever known it if Joseph had given up on God when the brothers ditched him. That is the power of steadfastness. Staying power. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit because he's not quitting on me. He's at work in me. He loves me. I can see the cross right now and Jesus dying for me. I can see the empty tomb right now and the resurrected Christ who reigns. I can believe right now that he's sitting beside the Father and praying right now for the church, living in the 2000s, in the midst of a pandemic, frustrated as can be, stressed out. And he's up there praying for us. 
He knows what we're going through. He knows that it's hard. And he's saying, I've got you. Hold on tight. The power of steadfastness. The goal, if you look back at James chapter 1, was not steadfastness. As beautiful as it is. Now listen. Just because somebody learns how to stick it out doesn't mean they've become what they're supposed to be. I mean, it is a beautiful thing when somebody stays married for 50 or 60 years. But if you're a bad husband for 50 or 60 years, it's just kind of like, okay, (laughs) glad you stuck it out, but it could have been so much more, right? Hey, just because you stayed at your job for 50 years, nobody does that really, 30 years until they retired, right? Doesn't mean you're employee of the month. Might have been a bad employee those whole 30 years, and maybe they're thinking, I'm glad they're retiring. Steadfastness isn't the goal. Steadfastness is admirable, it's honorable, it's not the goal. The goal, look at James, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, believer, listen. God has a goal for your life. And a lot of times those prosperity people will twist that into something that may not be the goal. Here's the goal. God wants you to be like him. God wants you to love what he loves, hate what he loves. God wants you to live with a conviction that says, I only want to live for his glory. I only want to make decisions that reflect him. I want to be a bright shining light in a dark world. I want to be honest everywhere. I want to be sincere everywhere. I want to be authentic and genuine to the praise of Jesus, no matter who says it, who likes it, who sees it, who observes it, no matter what. God has a goal for your life, for you to be whole, complete, perfect, lacking in nothing, mature in Christ. Now we know, and Josh Wama did a great job preaching on it just last Sunday night or two Sunday nights ago. He preached on what we believe about glorification. Now we know we're never going to be perfect and complete until we get to heaven. We know that. We know that. But we still know that the goal is to get there. And so God is working in us every day through every trial and every test to produce in us steadfastness. That steadfastness would produce in us maturity, the point of maturity. He is working in us to make this happen. The NIV application commentary says this, mature is a key term for James. There is no other book in the New Testament that uses that word as often. When it is used of character, okay, listen here, character, it implies that God is a part of whatever process is involved in the formation of character. And that's way different than a worldly character. God shapes the character which makes it complete or mature or full or whole. Again, Pastor Hughes says, Perfection is not just a maturing of character, but a rounding out as more and more parts of the righteous character are added. And here's what it's getting at. You've heard this before, right? You heard people say before that sports build character. Man, I love that conversation. I listen to those talks all day long. Sports build character. And as soon as somebody says, well, sports don't build character, sports reveal character. And there's a big difference there, right? And if you don't like sports, then we'll just say adversity. Adversity builds character. And then we say, well, no, that doesn't build character. Adversity reveals character. Well, which one is it? Well, obviously, it's both, right? Through a sport or through an adversity, we get to see character. 
But if you stick with it long enough and you get coached and, and, and chewed out and you lose and you, you realize you're not very good, then you stick with it long enough and character is produced. And then next time we're watching you, we say, hey, that sport of that adversity revealed your character. You say, well, it didn't actually uh, reveal my character or build my character. It revealed my character because I've been in this for a long time. You see what I'm saying? The idea there, though, is that through this steadfastness as God is working in our lives, we are a work in progress. Where it's not one little component that we're calling character, it's the whole of us that is our character. So that whether you know, me and you get sideways here, or whether somebody cuts in line at the Dairy Queen drive-thru, or whether the bank line's taking too long because of the pandemic we're not allowed to go inside, that my response is the same no matter who sees it. So whether somebody like you that, that I've been with for years that I know loves me irritates me, or it's somebody at the grocery store that irritates me, it's the same type of thing. It's my character. It's who I am. It's not a part of it. You catch me in this little area, you think, man, he's a pretty nice guy. But you catch me over here, you think, he's a jerk. See, God is working in us to bring all of us, all of me, all of you, all of who you are, into the likeness of Christ that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, steadfastness having its full effect in you. Do you remember Philippians 1.6? I am confident of this very thing, that the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, that God started a work in you and God will complete a work in you, so if there's a starting point for what he's doing in you and there's a completed point of what he's doing in you, what do you think all this is? The process, the steadfastness, which comes through trials, which comes through tests. The brother of James, Jesus, says it like this. Blessed are they that have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Who thinks that way? Who actually thinks that way. The mature believer. Not the immature believer. The mature believer. And James is telling the persecuted church what God's doing to make them mature. If you're here today and you're wanting your Christianity to still be about you, and you're just hoping you've got enough, enough God in your life to get you to heaven then you don't like this. But if you're here today hoping that God is worshiped in your life, that God gets the glory through you, then you love hearing that God would bring trials and tests to make you like him. Because a Christian that's living for themselves is making no impact in the world. We're pushing people away. We're driving people away. We're offending people right and left and thinking, that's no, okay, that, you know, that's, 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 my, uh, that's my privilege to be able to do that. 
But the believer that wants people to know their God and know their Jesus understands that it is through the building or revealing of character of Christ working in us that will produce Christ-likeness. And it is the beauty of Christ and his glory that draws people to Christ. Listen to this. This is a part of the fellowship of Christ and of the saints. The sunshine band of those who have learned to smile in the midst of tears. Like the sunshine in the rain, Paul was able to say, we also rejoice in our tribulations. This is not the joy of the fanatic or the joy of the faker or the joy of the rhapsodist. This is the joy of the soul that is at peace with God in Christ and also has more than earth and hell can take away from them the peace that surpasses all understanding. The disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ, Acts 5, 41. You know that verse, don't you? The disciples rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. That is some mature thinking, is it not? Hey, you dishonor me and I will bust you in the mouth. We hear all the time from Christian people. Hey, you do me wrong, and I ain't ever speaking to you again. Christian people right and left talk like that. Disciples took their licks and kept on preaching. Disciples said, count us worthy. So, one commentator says that when the negatives and trials fall upon your life, Don't say that I found some bad fortune, but rather respond with, this is an opportunity opportunity for me to respond nobly, which is a good fortune. When the trials and tests hit your life and your response is a complaint of bad fortune that has fallen upon you, It's actually an opportunity to respond with the glory of God by faith, trusting your Father in heaven who knows and sees it all, and see that as an opportunity of good fortune. And so here's what we must do when we get to trials and tests, church, and what a witness this will be. We don't ask anymore why, we ask what. And that difference in question will shape everything about the maturity of faith in your life. Instead of saying, why God, we say, what God? God, what are you doing? Not the way I wanted it to go, but you know better than me. Not the way I planned it, but your plans are greater than my plans. You're wiser than me. So not why God as if God made a mistake. What God is if you trust his purpose. You trust his plan. And the maturity is the point of the trials, the tests, the steadfastness, and so forth. It gets us to maturity. Maturity in Christ. Being a part of a healthy and growing church... We've seen our fair share of pregnancies and babies and kids and families and all of that, and and, and that's awesome. And I'm thankful for that, and I'm excited about that and the future of our church and expanding nursery and all that good stuff. And I wanted that, to be honest. I hope that that our church all the way around is excited about that. 
But I didn't know that with that came so much hardship. I honestly didn't know how many miscarriages and children die. I didn't know that. And so over the years, I've met a lot of people, a lot, who have buried their children. Many of you all here and many of you all watching online have been through that. You've had a child die. You've suffered through a miscarriage. And that is so hard. No doubt about it, that's a trial. But I've seen God grow you through it. I've seen you suffer and endure and hold on tight. Sometimes with your head hung low. Oftentimes with tears. We've seen it. You know what that's done for me? It's made my faith stronger. You know what that's done for the upcoming couple? It's made their faith stronger. You know what it's done for the person that didn't experience it or didn't know anybody else that experienced? It's made their faith stronger. And I've learned to be able to tell people that you're not alone. You're not alone in that. Mary watched her son die. God watched his son die. And we are to believe from God that he has a purpose in his trials and tests for us. And so we are to consider it joy, not because we like the trial, but because he has such a purpose in it that he is producing steadfastness, and that makes us mature in Christ. This is the opening words to those receiving James's letter. Church, we need to be honest about where our faith is. We need to be honest about do we believe our Father in heaven and our risen Savior. And if we do, let's trust him no matter what we're going through. And may, may God's purpose for our lives have the full effect, mature followers of Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for James 1, 2, 3, and 4. Father, I ask for our entire church that you would make our hearts be set on believing you. That our starting point is trusting God. That our faith is that you are our God. We thank you for Jesus. Oh God, create here a mature church. Father, thank you for the book of James and how it's already ministering to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.